Is it possible that something written 2,700 years ago would have any relevance to our life today? And, and that's what's just so incredible to me about Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. We're taking a break from Mark, a one-week break. And when I mapped out uh, the book of Mark and figured out what dates and what passages we would be going through the book of Mark through this year, um, I, you know, I came to Christmas and I was like, oh, I probably should take a break from Mark and do a Christmas passage. And I noticed that at the time, just it just worked out this way. And maybe God arranged it for us uh, that in the consumant reading plan, you know, that we're doing through I ate them.com, uh, we were in Isaiah chapter nine. So if you're reading that plan, you, you're going to be in Isaiah chapter nine. And Isaiah nine, one through seven contains one of the most well-known Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. And so I was like, wow, that's really cool. That's perfect. I'm going to do that. But, and I didn't really look at it real carefully back in August. And I've only, you know, recently been going into Isaiah to try to figure out how I'm going to teach this message. And I'm just, again, just so amazed at how perfect this passage is and how it fits for us actually into Mark. And it also fits into this cultural moment. Let me, let me just highlight a couple of things. Right at the beginning of, of, of Isaiah 9, a second, here we go. Isaiah chapter 9, right at the verse 1, it, it, it says, In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he, and it goes on to talk about how he's redeeming them and, and, and bringing them into a better place. Um, so those are uh, areas, those, uh, th- those are the tribes. So those are two tribes of Judah. There were 12 tribes of Judah. And they just so happen, here's a, here's a map that has all the different tribes. Um, and it just so happens, I'm zooming in here, that, that those two tribes are the primary place where Jesus ministered in his life, Zebulun and Naphtali. And, and you see that body of water there, right there is the Sea of Galilee. And as we've been going through Mark, we've been He's been going all around the Sea of Galilee. So he grew up in Nazareth in that area. And then the vast majority of his earthly ministry was in those areas. So so this prophecy is pointing towards that light of the world that's coming in at that time. Um, You know, another thing I think this passage does great for us is it helps us to understand, you know, some of the mentality for the disciples. You know, there's been a couple of times where the disciples have, in Mark, have not fully understood the purpose of the Messiah. You know, they were expecting the Messiah to be a king. And then Jesus, is he points out to them multiple times, but yeah, that's true. But also the Messiah is meant to suffer on behalf of the world and for, for people, to redeem people back to himself. Um one way to think about that is that it's, 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 you know, we know at this point that there's two comings of Christ. There's the first coming and then there's the second coming. And when you look at a timeline of history, you know, from the past to the present and into the future, you see two uh, high points of Jesus coming. Well, but if you're in the past and you're looking into the future and you see uh, prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament, it would be easy to think that there isn't there isn't two comings. There's actually one coming, and what we're going to see in this Isaiah passage is it talks a you know about Jesus as King, the Messiah as King. So it shouldn't surprise us at all that the the disciples thought 
and assume that since he was the Messiah and he had come, that he was about to establish his earthly kingdom, which is what it talks about here. Um, and then the other thing, too, that that I think, you know, just again, thinking about this passage, uh, you know, this is one of the most well-known passages, I think, mainly because of Handel's Messiah. You know, you've been doing your shopping and you've probably heard this sung, you know, in just the background music in the store where you're at. You've, you've probably grown up just hearing this this song. You know, it's it's this famous one. And I'm like, OK, should I should I sing this? I mean, you know, it's, you know, it's. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And then it goes on, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. I'm, I'm totally butchering this. You guys are probably laughing right now. And then it goes to the big joyous moment, you know, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. All right. Okay, I've, I've, I've thoroughly embarrassed myself. Um, that's, you know, these are such well-known uh, passages for us culturally because of those things. But here's another thing, though, that I think is just so fantastic to think about this in terms of the relevance of Isaiah in the current moment. And, and that's this question, do we fear government or politics? You know, when I log into Facebook, when I see what's being said in the media and radio and all these kind of places, there is a whole lot of fear being communicated right now. A lot of fear about who was it or wasn't elected and, and what's going to come or not going to come because of that in politics. Tons of fear. And this passage is addressing that directly. And the second question is, it, it makes us ask, is our hope in God or is our hope in government? You know, because I think a lot of times as Christians, we're fearing government and our hope is in government. In other words, man, if, if we could just get the right person in office and the right laws, then all of our problems would be solved. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't strive for good government. I'm not saying that at all. But my hope's not in that. I don't believe that any form of human government is going to solve the ultimate problems that we deal with. That's the point of Jesus. That's the point of the gospel. We need Jesus for a heart transplant, for a heart change. And no law or good government can really bring that kind of thing. So let's just walk through this passage. And the first point I want to highlight for verses one through five is that do not fear anything in government or politics. Do not fear anything in government or politics. Let's just run through this passage. It starts off in verse chapter 9, verse 1. It says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. And that but is in the Hebrew, and it's referring back to what's happened in chapter 8. And just for context, uh, the prophet Isaiah has, has brought a prophecy to the nation of Israel because they are not worshiping God, God is going to raise up the Assyrian government, the Assyrian nation to come and to invade them. It's a lot of doom and gloom. And so he's saying there's going to be significant anguish, but in other words, okay, guys, that hard thing is happening, but let me give you a little bit of hope. In the former time, he brought into contempt 
the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. These are just a couple of, of uh, tribes within all of Israel. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of nations. And th those are just poetic ways of saying the same thing that he just said. It's like, these things are coming, but there's now going to be hope. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Jesus is the light of the world. Again, he grows up in this area. He does most of his ministry uh, when he's on earth in this area. The light of the world come to knock out darkness. You have multiplied the nation. Talking about God. You have increased his joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they were glad when they divided the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the enemies, the Assyrians, and all of the evil of darkness, and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. And that's referring back to the battle that Gideon led, that God used Gideon with just 300 men to defeat all the Midianites, a gigantic army, and they did it without swords or even a battle. And the point that God's saying here in this prophecy is that I am going to win the victory, and it's going to be one of those victories where it's very clear who was the one who did it, who gets the credit, because Gideon can't take any credit. It wasn't this heroic thing like, you know, the, the Greek 300. Um, this was just uh, God doing it. So that's what he's saying. It's going to be like that. For every boot of the tramping warrior and battle and tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So these instruments of battle are going to now be used for something useful, like fuel for a fire. And so again, do not fear anything in government or politics. Now I want to turn though, is like, okay, so how do we know if that's really an area that, that we're fearing? Like, I, 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 you know, do I fear government? Do I fear what's going on in politics? Let me give you a couple of proofs, proofs of fear. And I think number one is that we are seeing an increase in the prevalence of conspiracy theories. More and more crazy conspiracy theories. You know, it's, it's foreign communists that have been dead for many years that played some kind of long game with with uh, U.S. companies to uh, create algorithms and hack and and uh, get in cahoots with every single judge and and uh, governors and state uh, secretaries of state and senator. I mean, it's like this: the list of the conspiracy of all these people is like growing. And every time there's a roadblock or, you know, the Supreme Court says no or a, a governor refuses to do something or a, a judge, you know, whatever it might be, the conspiracy has to grow to them. It's like, okay, that person must be involved in this conspiracy in some way. Well, turn a page back in Isaiah chapter 8 to verse 11 and look at what he says. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people saying, so he's saying, Isaiah, I don't want you to walk anything like the people that are around you. Your life should look very distinct from the people around you. Here's what he said. Do not call conspiracy 
all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. I mean, he's getting right to this issue. Verse 13, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Guys, I mean, it doesn't matter how gigantic the Assyrian army is or how formidable or powerful they are, even in reality, let alone make-believe conspiracies. If God is on your side, you've got absolutely nothing to worry about. Don't fear them, fear God. Align your fear with him. So proof of fear, number one, increased prevalence of conspiracy theories. And then the second one, I think increased anxiety because of who wins or who loses or what policies might be implemented or might not be implemented. We are feeling more and more anxiety because of government and politics. And if that's true, then we are fearing government and politics. Let me point you to one verse a lot of Christians know this verse about anxiety. You know, if we're feeling anxiety, if you've probably been instructed and taught in this verse and you've been encouraged to memorize this verse. Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything. It's a very clear command. Instead, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So if I'm feeling anxiety, I take that to him in prayer with thanksgiving. And, and here's the promise. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Again, if you've been a Christian for a while, you're very familiar with that passage. But let's not forget the context of this verse and the verse that comes right before it. Look at verse 5. He says, let your reasonable reasonableness be known to everyone, for the Lord is at hand. That's the same idea that he was saying uh, to Isaiah in chapter 8. The Lord of hosts is with you. Fear and dread him. Guys, I think that right now, again, we've got some crazy conspiracy theory. I mean, people are throwing out all kinds of nutty stuff. And, and it is being passed around from by top leaders, like people that should know better. And more and more Christians are believing these, these crazy ideas. Again, like, you know, dead communists that had these long games to hack computer systems. And I mean, and, and all of a sudden judges are now involved in it and, and secretaries of state and governor. I mean, it's like the list is just getting crazier and crazier. And then in response to all that fear, people are floating around ideas like, well, we need to impose the Insurrection Act and, and a, a martial law needs to be implemented. It's like... Guys, this is nowhere close to reasonable. What are we communicating to everyone? When we are unreasonable in our society, in our culture, we are communicating the opposite of the last phrase here. We're saying the Lord is not at hand. Because the Lord is not at hand, I have to do these things. I have to act in fear. I have to act on my anxiety. Guys, I think that these are great proofs that we fear government and we fear politics. So do not fear anything in government. And then going on, it says we need to put our hope in the Messiah's kingdom. That's the last two verses. He says, for to us, a child is born. Jesus comes in the world 
as a baby. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And by the way, one question that I've had is that Everlasting Father. You know, the we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but he is part of the three parts of God, the Trinity. And the attributes of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is one, but he's three persons. And that's a great mystery. But the attributes of the Father are the same as the attributes of the Son, are the same as attributes of the Holy Spirit. And everlasting Father is not meant to say that the Son is the Father. It's meant to say that He is over time. He is the Father of time. He goes beyond time. I think it also could have implications to His kingship. Oftentimes, a a king can be referred to as the Father of that nation. So I don't think this is at all inconsistent with the Trinity, but going on, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. When Jesus returns, he is going to implement his kingdom on earth. It is going to be a perfect government with perfect justice. And we won't fight over policy or law. We can trust the king because the king not only is perfect, but he's all-knowing. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it. Again, fulfilling the promise that was made to King David that his throne would be established forever. With justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Again, there's that same phrase we saw back in Isaiah 8. He is the Lord of hosts. Guys, and it's not based on what we do. Uh, This kingdom is not conditioned on our performance. It's conditioned on the zeal of the Lord of hosts. His passion and his love for his glory and for his people and to enjoy all of that together with his people. Do not fear anything, government or politics, and put your hope in the Messiah's kingdom. And here's the bottom line that I just really want you guys to to walk away with is that especially this time of year at Christmas, we are meant to be agents of hope not agents of fear. Guys, we have nothing to fear because the Lord of hosts is at hand. He is with us. He is absolutely with us. And I think because of that, we need to stop using phrases like us versus them as as if these people are the enemy. Scripture teaches us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. The ultimate enemy is Satan and the forces of darkness. And and again, that's another theme that we've seen in Mark is that Jesus is leading an invasion. He is a king invading another kingdom. And he invites, not forces, he invites people to join in his kingdom. Remember what he said right at the beginning of, of, of Mark. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Guys, that, that's the message that we want to be communicating, not fear and anxiety, but trust and hope in a future kingdom that's coming.